Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, a judge gives lawmakers a deadline to make good on the Leandro decision. An energy bill becomes law. How will it affect you? And the worker shortage gets real. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Here in North Carolina, it seems we've been talking about the Leandro decision for decades. That's because we have. The Leandro decision dates back to a 1994 complaint against the state by several low-wealth rural school districts for failure to fairly and adequately fund their schools. The outcome of that case? A ruling by the state Supreme Court based on our state constitution that every child is entitled to a sound basic education. Years later of Supreme Court judgments, research studies, and delays, citizens have yet to see any action. But this week, Superior Court Judge David Lee ordered state lawmakers to comply with the Leandro Comprehensive Remedial Plan, a research-based spending plan designed to finally remedy the original complaint. But now, resistant lawmakers argue the courts have no authority Authority to tell them what to do. So let's talk about it. I'd like to welcome State Senator Natalie Murdoch of Durham, political analyst Steve Rao, and Lamisha Whittington of Advance Carolina. Thank you all three for being here. Senator Murdoch, let's yes. start with what the courts have a right to do. What is before yes. the legislature right now regarding the Leandro decision? Yes, um, the courts are well within the right to engage in this action. As you said, we have been having this battle for some decades. And I actually want to take a step back. We are in the South. Um, so I want to remind folks, when our schools were segregated, um, it was the courts that stepped in and said that um, school systems needed to integrate following Supreme Court cases. So the court is well within this right to lay out what it is that our children deserve and need instead of fighting about it. Uh, we need to utilize the resources that we have here in this state um, due to federal funding and um, other funds from other um, years where we were not able to finalize the budget. Um, the money is there, and so we simply need to uh, get in a room, hash it out, and to fully fund Leandro. Um, we can space that out over a number of years, but with the surplus that we have, um, we definitely have the resources to fully fund Leandro. Um, we're talking about our children. This should not be um, something that is controversial. Um, it is something that we simply need to do, as you stated, our state constitution is very clear and all of our children have the right to a basic education. That's the least that we can do for our children. I can't agree more. And when it comes to that basic education, Steve, there are a number of provisions uh, of the Leandro Comprehensive Remedial Plan. What can you share with us about that and why there's been resistance to enact it? Well, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here, as always. And, you know, I think that the remedial plan, uh, basically some of the basic provisions is, you know, just providing more resources for our children to have a world-class education, uh, investing in early child care, making sure that every school has a principal, investing in diverse teaching staffs and training of our teachers, and just keeping our educational system in par so that every child has a right for that education. And so 
uh, it's a great report, and you know about you know 646 billion uh, in the in the budget for 2022. But as you said in your question, why, why is it being neglected? Why are we not funding? The Senate's only funding about 17 percent of that in this year's budget, leaving about 2.5 billion on the table. I think there's two reasons, as I observe it. First of all, I think the majority of the Senate, the majority party, they're failing to understand the connection between education and freedom. We've talked about that on the show, but in many of these disenfranchised communities, whether it's Hope County, Carteret County, other places around the state, if you don't have an education, you can't advance. You can't get a job and you're, you're locked. And we've seen this particularly with minority communities, communities of color. The second thing I would say, and we're going to talk about it in a few minutes, is about job training and the labor shortage. But, you know, one of my uh, fellow native West Virginians, Dr. Alec Ross, has written a book called Industries of the Future. And in that book, he basically says that almost every industry in the next 10 years does not exist today. And in the, these are areas like artificial intelligence, robotics, genomics, cybersecurity, data, analytics. And we need an educational system that is flexible enough to invest in training our children and our teachers on how to create the skills needed for the new economy. This is a matter of global competitiveness for North Carolina and global competitiveness for America. It's a critically, critically important issue. And this is not just an expense. This is a significant investment because without education, we're not going to be able to have the jobs of the future as many jobs will be automated away. Well, there are certainly a lot of uh, provisions under Leandro. And I, I do want to talk about even more specifics, but also these objections that are coming out in um, L.A. One of the objections that's been outlined is this is a report that was uh, devised or constructed by an outside agency, not by someone in the state or an organization in the state. But that's not entirely true, is it? Not really. So in 2017, the plaintiffs and the defendants, uh, when we're talking about the Leandro case, agreed to allow an independent consultant to advise, right, the judge appointed to oversee the Leandro implementation. So this was a legal agreement, right, between plaintiffs and defendants. It was already predetermined, right? It's law. So what we're seeing concerning with this, I would say this smoke screen of language is to deflect from the fact that law and just practice was actually exercised in saying we need outside researchers that isn't swayed or persuaded by biases or politics. We've seen the impact of such biases with gerrymandering in our state. We've seen the impact of black or brown communities when we were surgically uh, uh, targeted for our voting mass. So we know what could have happened if a Republican Republican gerrymandered legislature had control over seeing this budget implementation. So this was an agreement. But in addition to that, Governor Cooper actually appointed a commission of North Carolinians, experts, educators, superintendents, academic experts, attorneys, school psychologists to a commission to actually begin to give feedback, oversee what exactly needed to be in this budget. So why aren't we trusting these North Carolinians and their experts? Why are we not trusting and elevating that these are the individuals who work in the schools every single day or the attorneys who are, you know, well apt in expertise in school education law, right? So pairing with this external uh, firm, 
was also North Carolina experts. So it's really a power grab. And in my opinion, a tantrum to say, well, we should have been included. Well, you were as soon as the research was brought to you. That's what we do in academia. We provide the research, right? That statistical data and analysis of what money do we need, where and why, and to who it needs to go to most. And then it's presented. That seems logical and secure. And some of the other issues they have is that there is going to be an Office of Equity Affairs at the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction that will be instituted in this Landra budget. They think that's a concern. Okay, so your concern is that we want equity and access. We want equity actually in teachers. Black teachers account for 16% of North Carolinian teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Even though 54% of all students, right, are non-white. Well, I have to ask, um, as far as the next step and this judge's uh, mandate, so to speak, Senator Murdoch, what is your confidence level that this is going to push things forward so that we actually get something enacted? The kids who were, who were in school at the time of the original complaint have, lo have long graduated yes. and are in jobs and probably have children of themselves. Yes, um, it is my understanding the judge has provided a deadline of November 8th, and so I think as we um, get closer to November 8th, we will have to see uh, what my colleagues are going to do. As we all know, we are still in the middle of a budget cycle. We are one of the few states um, in the nation that has not passed a budget, but that puts us in a position to um, still continue to negotiate. We have heard the um, judge's recommendations loud and clear, um, and he is serious, and there is precedent for this. It has happened in other states. Um, he has every right to to do what he's doing um, and also want to add if we are entertaining things such as um, reducing corporate taxes to zero percent um, then surely the least that we can do is find funding um, so that we can fully fund Leandro and implement this remedial plan. I would agree with that as well. Hope, hopefully there's going to be some movement on this. LA what's your confidence in this um, you know this this judge's decision? Well, <clears throat> I would, my more or what I'm, my concern is the state budget, right? So when we're talking about the state budget and the inclusion of education, the state budget has been passed in three years. And so the ability for school education, for the ability of what is a constitutional mandate, right, as Senator Murdoch already stated, to uh, make sure that resource and funded opportunities are, you know, provided for all students. Okay, for that to be tied in a state budget that is now being deliberated, debated, uh, that's concerning because, again, what is going to be the impact and the delay with receiving the funding for our schools? The original five schools are located in Southeast Raleigh, the original five that filed this complaint 24 years ago. Those are the same areas that have disasters, right? Those 500-year storms that come every year now. Those are the same communities with PFAS in their water that we heard Administrator Regan speak about last Monday. These are the same individuals that have the largest Native American population east of the Mississippi and the largest Black Belt. We are already underfunded and behind, and we don't need politics playing games with our children's education and environmentally sound infrastructure. We definitely need to get some decisions made on the budget for education, but also uh, for energy and for climate change. Yes. We hear a lot about climate change and efforts to change over to clean energy. Here in North Carolina, Governor Cooper recently signed Energy Bill 951 into law that received bipartisan support and will likely impact utility bills into the future as well as emission standards. So this was considered a compromise bill, Senator Murdoch. What are some yes. of the positives and, and who had to compromise on this? Yes, um, you definitely said it best. It is a compromise bill, meaning that um, a number of individuals did not get everything 
everything they wanted, um, myself included, um, and do want to highlight in the Senate, um, that is where we saw this bill change a lot. So um, there were four key senators in my caucus that worked with the majority, um, and, and it truly, truly was, was a compromise. It is probably one of the most um, bipartisan pieces of legislation that um, has made it to the governor's desk um, this session. Um, Governor Cooper was also very, very heavily involved in negotiations, so that was a stark contrast to the process you saw in the House, um, where everything was really quiet and behind closed doors. Um, the process was a lot more collaborative once the bill came to the Senate. Um, but to be clear, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed environmentalist and um, was excited about the prospect of getting something done this year. Um, but I do think that um, we still, you know, move very quickly through this process. We did not have the opportunity to have. Um, a lot of robust public engagement, um, a lot of robust engagement with other stakeholders, um, still could have had the ability to um, really kind of sort through a lot of these details. So very excited that our carbon reduction goals um, will be codified in statute. Um, and that is significant. I will not understate that. I believe we will be the only state in the South um, where those carbon reduction goals were codified in law, um, goals that were set forth by Governor Cooper. Um, but by and large, where the bill falls short is is we cannot have that compromise on the backs of our low-income individuals that um, will not have the ability to pay their energy bills. Having access to energy and utilities, what does that mean? That means the ability for uh, mothers to turn their lights on and to warm bottles for their children. Um, it means our ability to make sure that uh, we have a stable power grid since we know that um, black and brown people, low-income people, are more susceptible to having to move in the event that um, there is some extreme weather emergency. So um, we need more redundancy in our system. We need a more stable um, energy system and portfolio. But again, um, we cannot do that um, on the backs of um, those that do not have the ability to pay their utilities bills. We are still um, in the midst of this pandemic. And um, what the, the bill left out, two huge things are something we call a just transition, where if you are that individual working at that coal plant, we all agree that we need to invest in more renewable energy options. Um, but if you do become unemployed as a result of that coal plant shutting down and other states, they have done a lot of work towards something called a just transition, where in the event that you lose your job, um, we spell out how we will assist you, how we make sure that those hundreds of people um, are provided with other skill sets, that they get jobs in the um, clean and renewable energy sector. We need, really need to spell out what that looks like. Um, and what's most concerning is the opportunity for Duke Energy to have access to multi-year rate making, um, upwards of three years, um, where we do know those energy bills could go up as much as 4% um, in a single year. So that is concerning that um, not only are the utility bills going up, but we have not spelled out in law and statute um, how we will assist um, those ratepayers. And again, energy is not optional. That is something we all need. It is one of the most basic utilities that we can provide people. Um, so for that reason, I was unable to support this bill. Um, but again, um, commend my colleagues for working really, really hard. Um, but I definitely think that um, we can do better. I think this is the first step um, as we not only go through this current budget process, but um, return even for short session. Right. Um, we will continue to stress that we have to do something um, for low income energy users. So it's not completely finished. It's a signed law. But um, Steve, let me bring you in here because the senator has certainly laid out a lot of the challenges 
that are embedded in the compromise, but some gains that were made. What is your assessment? Well, first of all, I agree with Senator Murdoch that we have to be concerned about higher utility bills for our citizens in North Carolina, uh, particularly in, in, during a pandemic where just water, electricity, just to keep uh, families fed and healthy during a pandemic, right, to prevent infection. So that is a concern that I have. Uh, and I think that the only positive to me is the reduction of carbon emissions. I think that's a huge win for businesses and families in North Carolina that this bill will achieve Governor Cooper's objective or goal of 70% reduction of carbon emissions by 2035 and net zero carbon emissions by 2050. That's big because that means that we're taking a huge step forward in addressing climate change. The second opportunity, there are challenges with you know, higher rates, also industries like coal and fossil fuels being threatened, job loss, like in my home state of West Virginia. But I think there's a lot of new jobs that we can create through renewables, through wind, uh, solar, uh, solar power. And, uh, you know, the New Deal, the New Green Deal talked about, you know, 18 million new jobs over the next 10, 12 years, uh, maybe even sooner. So I think those are the opportunities. And the final thing I'll say is uh, this bill does look at lower cost uh, options for uh, generating electricity. So hopefully we can leverage innovation to make sure that there are ways we can reduce these rates and costs for our consumers. But all in right. all, I think it was a win and a good step forward for the state of North Carolina. Yeah, some positives, some uh, challenges. L.A., what's your take on this? So as energy advocates, we uh, are extremely, uh, we're extremely against this bill. Um, and for most of the primary reasons that Senator Murdoch elevated. First of all, this bill was actually primary authored by a senator who was the former president of the North Carolina Duke Energy uh, branch. Uh, number two, this bill was actually drafted in secret between February and March with Duke Energy, Republican legislators, and few primary stakeholders who were chosen through a process that wasn't actually public. And then it didn't become public for us until October, the actual bill itself. The bill doesn't include unregulated utilities, customers, and co-ops. So it's strictly a literally Duke Energy regulated bill. It doesn't include all customers in energy of North Carolina. Uh, the other concern in the bill for us was the carbon emissions reduction was a visionary, right? That's the goal, right, perceived of this act. But the language and the goal says what's reasonable, and it actually isn't mandated to achieve the carbon emissions reduction by the, the goal set by Governor Cooper. So if it's not mandated, that means there's flexibility to go beyond the required limit. That's concerning because what's not flexible in this bill, what is mandated, is the, the raises that will go up for our people's energy bills. So in three years, as Senator Murdoch said, by 50% in three years, our bills, if you're a Duke Energy customer, will increase. So that adds a thousand plus dollars annually to your light bill, to and your energy. And once again, making, having this to rest on the backs of the poor people who, who often are in these neighborhoods with the low efficiency uh, energy yes. uh, utilities in their buildings and right. so forth. So mm -hmm. there's more work, I would say, to be done, even though it, there's really strong and positive news coming out of the fact that a compromise was reached. Yes. In many respects, our economy is booming, but more and more it seems as though the labor shortage is real. How can that be? How can it be, Senator Murdoch, that, that we have a labor shortage? And I'll just share a real quick personal experience. A couple Fridays ago, I wanted a pizza. I called up my favorite pizza shop. It was about 8 o'clock in the evening. And they said, I'm sorry, 
we are closed because we don't have enough workers. And yes. I was shocked. Anytime you can't get a pizza on a Friday night, there's a labor shortage. Yes, um, everywhere you go, and to your point, you know, whether it's your local favorite restaurant, but even as I travel the state, um, I have family all over the state. I've seen this in rural areas, urban areas, suburban. No matter where you go, you will see a help wanted sign. You will see um, amended hours for them simply not having the workforce that they need. Um, so this is a real problem, and I also want to center this conversation on first and foremost acknowledging the lives we have lost. I, I think that some of it that we fail to report Hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of COVID-19. So a lot of the workforce issues are we have lost population. We have you can't lost come population. to work if you're not there. If you if you are sick, if you are ill, if you have unfortunately died, um, that is a big factor. And what we found now is even as state and federal programs are, are winding down and um, stimulus checks are drying up, um, you are still seeing folks that will not return to the workforce. And I think it's also because we have not gotten COVID under control when it comes to the hospitality industries, our restaurants, um, a lot of those industries where you have direct contact with people, um, even in our education system. You have teachers that are quitting. Um, a lot of employees simply do not feel comfortable working and they do not want to risk their lives um, by physically going into to jobs every day. Unfortunately, as a legislative member, we've continued to be very visible and present at the General Assembly. I myself put my life on the line every day, so I think that's also um, a huge contributing factor as we are still in the midst of this pandemic. It just seems as though, Steve, there's several issues converging, and certainly COVID is still out there. I think about immigration as well, though. What are your well, thoughts? Well, you know, there's so many industries that are... Well, first of all, I think people are afraid to go back to work in person, like Senator Murdoch said. There's just a psychological fear with Delta variant and th these things going on. Uh, but I think, um, you know, the, the industries that affect, in addition to retail, are manufacturing and technology industry. We're about $12,000 down in manufacturing. Automation will continue to put people out of work. That's one issue. But in the tech industry, immigration uh, in North Carolina and the United States is critical. Today in North Carolina Triangle, there are 40,000 uh, immigrants, many from South Asia and India, that are on green waiting for their green card that are on the H-1B skilled uh, immigrant visa. And they are here because they are filling jobs that we need in terms of shortages. For every uh, you know, IT job open, there's two openings. I mean, there's just a lack of people to fill these jobs. And our immigration system today, I've been in Mooresville, and I talked to people in Mooresville and Cary that have been waiting for 12 years to become a citizen. They're innovating at universities, they're starting companies, and now some of them are going to, leaving to Canada. And at, at, at every level, at every skill level, right. I would say, Steve, um, we need immigrants in our workforce yes. and it seems yes. I'm seeing policies and actions that push immigrants back out oh. case in point Haiti you know do you you mean to tell me that those individuals wouldn't have been willing to come to North Carolina no. and fill up some of these $21 an hour jobs? Absolutely. I mean, it's been proven that, you know, immigrants uh, are always the drivers of economic growth in our nation. And then, these immigrants coming in from Haiti and other nations are producing to the economy billions and billions of dollars to our revenue. And uh, we need to make sure that we're welcoming them if they want to provide work and they want to provide skill to our country in the midst of a pandemic. So absolutely. Absolutely. And know. L.A., let me get you in on this. What are your thoughts about this shortage? And, you know, are we kind of in some ways, you know, hiding from some, re some realities out there about what's contributing to the shortage? 
Let's talk about uh, these low salaries and also the minimum wage uh, effort, uh, the minimum wage hike effort that virtually got ignored. That's right. That's right. So nearly three million American women have left the labor force over the past year due to pandemic. Before the pandemic, women consisted more than 50% of this country's workforce, right? But what in addition contributes to that exodus is the underpay, right? The lack of, in North Carolina last year, corporations were not mandated to socially distance. Corporations didn't provide mass PPE for our folks. So many of our low wage workers, many of our industries that are being hit the hardest, guess what? That's where COVID-19 was contracted the most. So our, our people are being forced to leave jobs to take care of their children. That's the top priority for women that have left is if I'm gone, who's taking care of my babies? Roughly 2 million more people in this country are, have already early retired because it's too much to consider losing everything in a pandemic. They would rather retire. That's 2 million. Over 700,000 of our people, to Senator Murdoch's point, have died from COVID-19. Millions have long haul covid issues and what health insurance, no state budget, what health insurance and over half a million folks lost health insurance last year. And then by October 2020, guess what? Immigrant and non-immigrant visas issued during that, that time, October 2020 was down by nearly 5 million or 54% of the total population from 2019. We have no people. It isn't about who doesn't want to work. It's about what have we done to provide quality of life so that folks can take care of their babies, put food on the table, and be confident that they can come home and not give their children COVID-19 or worse, not be here to take care of their children. What's the main message you're pulling from that, uh, mm -hmm. Senator Murdoch? We've got about one minute left. Main mm -hmm. message. Yeah, the, the main message is, um, I think, also during this time, um, folks have reevaluated their lives. They have said that they are not going to be um, overworked and underpaid. Um, they've said that they deserve to be treated fairly. They deserve wages. They deserve health care. Um, they ensure they... And, have the right to have paid leave. Um, so folks are not um, willing to, to go back and continue to do the same. They want to be valued. They don't want to put their life on the line um, and to not be treated with dignity and respect. And so I think that uh, we have to go back to the drawing table and really figure out uh, what we're getting wrong here so that we can attract um, the best employees. And as you all mentioned, um, with it, with immigration, you know, why, why can we not welcome them in to fill a lot of these vacancies that we see in various industries. People need to feel the dignity and the respect. Senator Natalie Murdoch, Steve Rao, L.A. Whittington, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Deborah. And I want to thank today's guests, and we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find all of our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Thanks for watching. Quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.